Hey everyone, welcome back to the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. It's Christmas Day here in Wrocław. It's kind of lonely. Um, it's just me. Uh, just me left uh, in my program, actually. And no one, everyone else uh, went to either travel to a different place, a different European country, or they are from around here and they went back home. So it's just me. I celebrated uh, Christmas Eve and also today with with today's guest uh, Francis Russell from Australia he's my only friend who's uh, who's left here um, and we had dinner last night he made a meatloaf a, uh, a whole chicken and a whole bunch of veggies and we we just ate and drank all night and uh, this morning wrapped up the leftovers and recorded this podcast so I'm not gonna go too much into I mean, yeah, I have, I have almost nothing to say because I'm about to get on a bus to go to Berlin for the next uh, week and a half. So I'll be in Berlin for New Year's Eve and, and the New Year. Uh, always uh, seem to have fun doing that. Um, I did I did New Year's in, in, uh, in Berlin uh, in 2014 going into 2015, and it was a lot of fun. I hope it's not as cold as last time. Uh, it was snowing last time and uh, just freezing cold, miserable weather. So I hope it's a little warmer. I don't think it's going to be, but I can always have an optimistic outlook on it. So yeah, I'll probably uh, record some some solo stuff out there because I have so much time by myself. Uh, but uh, yeah, without further ado, this week's episode... Uh, it's a little bit longer. Um, yeah, we ran maybe like ten minutes extra, but um, I hope you enjoy uh, the episode with the Christmas episode with Francis Russell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Fun Boat Diplomacy Podcast. I'm here today with Francis Russell. Welcome. And Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Yeah, so we had dinner last night. It was Christmas Eve, the 24th. Mm-hmm. We had a big dinner, and today we're cleaning up the leftovers. And, uh, yeah, it was delicious. We're having wine at noon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yes, uh, as Wyman just said, my name's Francis. Um I'm from Australia. I'm currently living here in Wroclaw as an English teacher, but uh, we got to know each other pretty early on when uh, we both moved here, what, like three months ago, mm-hmm. and the weather was still nice. Weather was nice. <laughs> it's Yeah, I, I, always, I keep... In this past week, I've been thinking about how it's only been three months, and then we got to do this t- two more times. So it's, well, it's six months till... More or less six months till the end of this... Uh, program here. Are you you're staying till the end of July? Uh, probably the end of June. End of June, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, me too. Because mm. then I have to go have this uh, summer school thing for the program in Germany, and that's gonna be really annoying because I'll have I'll have to figure out how to get my shit from here. Probably my plan is to leave it all in Berlin, and then uh, and then go to this this summer school, and then. I plan to spend like the next three months somewhere in the Baltics, I think. Yeah. Uh, have you been there? No, I haven't yet, actually. Um, 
I'm hearing a lot more about it now that I'm living here because so many people have been there. It's sort of it's strange. Uh, a lot of people who go on holidays here, they mainly stick to this part of Europe because they talk about how unsafe they feel the rest of the world is. They say that? Yeah. That, like I tell them, you know, why don't they go on a summer holiday? I talk about Southeast Asia a lot and they go, no, it's not safe there. And I don't want to deal with that. I just would rather go down to Croatia. I'm, uh, I was a little hesitant when I told you I was going to Naples and Italians will tell me that Naples is unsafe. And I was like, oh, oh, really? But yeah, I'm sure it's, it'll be fine. Yeah, because I just saw that, uh, I think it's a Vice documentary and they talk about how the kids tried a lot big pellet fires in the city one day of the year. Like, I, I can't remember what the day was, but, you know, they talk about how all the kids that embrace crime at a young age, so it's a city full of crime. In Naples? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I know that it's like second to Sicily when there's like as it comes to organized crime. But yeah, anyway. Uh, so you've uh, done you've te- you've taught English in like a lot of countries, or uh, or you've worked at least. Yeah, worked. I've worked with it. Like um, in when I was in the UK, uh, there was this work away program that people would do. Um, where they get people. Usually, the three countries would be the French. So France, Spain, or Italy, and the students might have a month off. And so they do what a work away is, where they work 16 hours, I think it is, at a hotel. And um, usually their English is very basic. And so part of my job was, you know, teaching them English to a standard where they could sit at reception at the hotel at the very least, which is usually the job you'd want them to do because that's the job nobody wants to do. Yeah, I worked with three, they, they call them uh, work and travel in the U.S. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's all these Eastern Europeans and they they go ahead and spend a summer, a few months working at a hotel, some sort of hospitality job. And, uh, yeah, and they get to do that and then, then they save up money and travel around the U.S. Is, is that the same with... No, no, because they don't get paid for this. So you get they don't free, get paid. No, they get free accommodation for like 16 hours. But uh, it's the thing with the labor laws here, because I noticed when I was in uh, Berlin the other week that um, I was talking to hostiles because I needed help with getting my working visa sorted out. And they had all these protesters out the front of one. I think it was the Wombat um, hostile. And... You know, they're a big company here in Europe, especially. All the protesters. And then when I got in there, um, I didn't realize the girl was an Aussie at reception. And I was like, what's with the protest? And they said, oh, uh, to them, this is slavery labor. You know, you can't have people working, say, 16 hours a week volunteering um, just for their accommodation. This breaks German laws. So. Who was protesting? There are people unrelated. Yeah, they didn't look like younger people. They looked like oh, older. Yeah. Maybe their kids worked in one of these hostels at some stage. And Yeah, I'm not too sure, but I generally think they're pretty cool, the programs at hostels. So. Yeah, we talked about this yesterday, and that that's, to be honest, infuriating because you have people who make, like I said yesterday, they make agreements with businesses to work for, for free for some, some sort of... Um, exchange that's not monetary, mm-hmm. and then it's it's a it's it's something that they voluntarily uh, enter into, and the business um, benefits from it. And then you get 
You get uh, what do you get? You get somebody who gets to have uh, to have experience working in this uh, this this industry, I guess you could call it, and then uh, and then you have uh, the the business running as 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 it can to be solvent, hmm. and then you have people who are completely unrelated to this agreement, uh, getting mad at at this uh, at this organization for 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 conducting it this way. Yeah, because hostels, they pride themselves on cheap accommodation, and I'm sure if they were booked at every night of the week, money wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, what it's like in the off-season or winter somewhere that's not near the snow, the place is practically empty. Um, in the summer, yeah, they're full. And I've worked at places where they would pay people to come in because of all the extra labour, but um, generally the volunteers who are there love it. I was living in Belfast um, when I first got there and I was at a hostel and you know a lot of them there this is their first living away from home experience and it was very comfortable for them in a hostel because they were around both people in the same boat as them and meeting people who have been living this lifestyle for years. I worked at eight hostels and it's just it's it's, uh, it's not about them it's really not about the money it's not it's it's about the experience and uh of course, ideally, people would like to get paid for for their work, but um, I don't regret any of the eight hostels that I've worked yeah. at. Um, my my uh, the the exchange that I entered into, and for people to to get mad at that, I'm sure Americans uh, could get mad at that too. Uh, just not um, not getting not someone out there not getting paid the minimum wage as as, as we like to. We like to be proponents of, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I'm not too sure if it'd happen in Australia because we do have a minimum wage, and people, you know, are very proud about that. But like most uh, countries I've been, hostels do have that volunteer program, which you know, it's. I've seen it in Bangkok before. Some people get in Thailand and they love the food and they're thinking about moving there, but they want to get a feel for the city. So they will volunteer at a hostel for a month and then make up their mind if they want to try and stay and work there. Yeah, you know about like work away and help X, right? Yeah. This, this is how I first got into it. My first one was in Bucharest mm. and that was a month. Just <clears throat> I needed some place between Berlin and Istanbul to 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 chill for a month and I looked at the map and I landed on Bucharest and <laughs> that's how I got into working at hostels and it's just you know this is how one of those turns that life takes you on and um, for for somebody if someone else were to get mad at me for not receiving pay or mad at the uh, the uh, the owners for for not giving me something uh, monetary like compensation it just it makes no sense for someone to tell me how to live my life that's what it comes down to that when i when i heard they only told me that people were getting mad in berlin at wombat's hostel it's like this 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 place is 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 creating something that's uh like a lot of hostels creating this uh environment that uh brings like priceless experiences to people mm. I don't know about Berlin because Berlin hostels have this um, have this reputation of being really uh, shitty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, how many of you've stayed at, but uh, I would split it right down the middle. But even the nicer ones I stayed at, they were massive. It's just lucky they weren't the rooms weren't full. But like they're, they're being clean and nice, but uh, 
They're not yeah. like the most cozy, most like. No, you know, you get some places where there's just the vibe where. Right. Uh, that's what I like about staying at hostels anyway. Um, everyone at the end of the day probably wants a private room and a private space at night time. Uh, but when you do the hostel experience, it adds something on the travel. Like, because we travel to see new places and, you know, meet new people. But there's also a vibe at the hostel where everybody's doing the same and you find it easier that if, if you do just want to do something with someone for a day, you can meet someone there. Um, where you, don't really get that experience if you're just staying at hotels and bed and breakfast. So I can understand especially why couples would do it more. So usually it's an anniversary or just having a private space. But oh, for me, I've loved it doing a hostile experience. I actually uh, encourage older people that I've met, you know, who would, you know, decide in their 50s even that they'll go travelling and then you suggest or might just try doing it through hostels. So, spend your money on the places you get like uh, you want to see in that city and not on the actual accommodation so I think crappy accommodation also encourages you to get out yeah 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 like I I always when I was working at the, this this hotel in, in Tahoe over the summer and people always had little things to what really bothered me a lot of times was televisions they'd be like oh my TV doesn't work <laughs> like what well, did you come all the way here and spend a hundred or more, most of the time more, on a room just to, just uh, or this beautiful nature, mountains and lakes and everything, <laughs> and you're here to watch TV, come on. Right. Yeah. Um, you've traveled a lot, I can gather, and mm -hmm. we, we, I've looked at your passport just now. Um, like, where, when did you start traveling and, like, where have you gone so far? I, I was probably a late bloomer, I think, because I grew up in a very rural area in a very rural part of Australia that was you know, just over 200 kilometres west of Melbourne. And so I was just a small town kid. But uh, I think it was my dad who really encouraged, he lived in America. And so he talked about the fact that don't, you know, when you're young, experience the world. It's really important. Um, and so by the time I was did my first year of uni, worked a summer holidays, I decided, uh, well, what's the easiest first trip to do? And I thought, New Zealand. Uh, went to New Zealand for a couple of weeks. That wasn't the best experience. I ended up you know, herniating two vertebrae on my back while I was snowboarding. <laughs> got back in, got back to Australia, saw the doctors, and I was like, oh, that wasn't an easy first holiday, but I think travelling alone for the first time, people forget to say, you know, a lot of anxieties, a lot of fears come out, but by the time you get through that trip, you forget about all of those, you know, situations you're in where you wanted to go home or you weren't enjoying it. And I was 18 or 19 at the time, first experience, and it was easy. And then after that, I think a year later, I had my first trip to Southeast Asia, so the typical circuit, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and that's when I fell in love with it. I was... How do I keep this lifestyle up? <laughs> Study, earn money, holidays. And even when I finished uni, um, the first thing I thought is what country can I live in now to work in? Um, because I'm 30 now, but I run out of chances to get easy visas now. Because Australians, we get these youth mobility visas that allow us to work in most countries. I think um, our longest agreement is with Canada. I can do it until I'm 35. Uh, so, 
for me, I've tried to keep that travel going by working in places. And I think the first thing I did was work as a dive master. I got my scuba dive tickets um, up to the master, so um, not an actual teacher. So I would, I could take people on normal dives or I can assist in a course. But I loved it and I thought I'd continue doing that. But um, yeah, I sort of fell into working at hotels and just hospitality a while and now I've fallen into teaching English uh, permanent or well full time and I want to keep doing it uh, and I personally think as long as you're comfortable with the fact you're going to be like have really busy times during the year like it, out of the 12 months 8 months of those would be extremely busy when you're a teacher it, you're living in another country and you've got 4 months to do anything you want so for me, it's that whole, I will stop traveling one day, but it's, I look at my mother, she's almost 60 and she's never left the country and she even says it's too late, I don't want to. Even though I was interested, I'm not interested anymore. And so I find the younger you are and you start doing it, you get it out of your system. And it's eventually, even if you want to settle in your home country or another country, you do find a place you're more comfortable to settle down. Because it's, I, I think people who don't travel, although they probably don't want to, they don't need to, they, they won't bring, you know, they won't be satisfied with doing that. That's not what they actually want. They probably do want a new, bigger, faster car. But they'll always regret not having that opportunity or not having to try it. Yeah, at least try it. And then I. I think about my parents as well. They didn't really travel, although they made one of the craziest leaps that I can ever imagine, which is like going to the United States where they don't speak any English. They still, <laughs> my, my mom still doesn't speak English, mm. and my dad has, has very limited English. But so they once in their life <laughs> made that leap, uh, which I still don't really understand uh, completely why they did it. But I'm glad they did because they gave me all these opportunities. But uh, I think about um, just in terms of mobility, mm. like uh, physical uh, capability of like climbing up a hill mm. or like going up like these cathedrals here in Europe, mm. like, the, the, the steps are so narrow and I'm just trying to imagine how scared I would be if I was like really old and brittle and trying to go up these because <laughs> they don't have elevators, they're built like long before the time of elevators. Yeah. And, uh, I remember... Mm, when I was going to mainland China, uh, I went to Sichuan province and they have this massive 713 meter Buddha. It's like one of the biggest Buddhas in the world. And it's, you have to either take a boat on the river to see it, but if you really want to get close, you have to hike up this, uh, the side of the mountain and then you can really, uh, get to it. And, um, it's something that like my mom was like, that's one of the most impressive things. She's she dreams of going to see it, but uh, the only way she can see it is if she's on that boat, which is great. It's fine that she has that opportunity to do so, but she can't hike up to it and like touch the foot, for example, of the Buddha. And uh, I'm not sure about you, but I've been on some crazy treks before. Where I'm always happy with what they call intermediate because we talked about this last night. I'm not a mountain climber. I'm not a big fan of the idea of um, trekking in the snow, sleeping in a tent mm -hmm. at night, and then getting to the top of a misty hill. Right. Uh, but I do like good treks, so intermediate's always good for me because I'm like, I'm fit enough to do it. 
um, but it's not going to be crazy just vertical mountain climbing. But some of them I've gone on and it's like slippery, muddy, treacherous. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think my mother would be able to do this. <laughs> no chance. Yeah, to me, three, four hours is, is, is a fun time. And then after that, the, the return is only marginal. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel. Um, yeah, let's just go. I mean, the longest I think I've gone on a hike was like six hours. That was really that was really nice, but um, yeah, uh, that window is three to four from yeah. me. I don't know where, where's where's like the most fun you've had trekking and hiking. Um, for me, like the most fun was probably in Laos, just because it was wet season and it's like the jungle and wet season. You don't get far, but it's quite fun because to me that's something I haven't seen much in my life, but. The most interesting was in the north of Burma where it's like the, oh, we're talking about that tribal military still rule the area, but it's like even villages don't like them and don't like them and the alliances are really bizarre. So you want to describe that into more detail for people yeah, who oh, don't know? Like all right. So, so a, this is a very unfamiliar country as of, yeah, like it opened up like four, three, four years yeah, ago. I, I think it was, could have been 2012 or 14. But it's not long. And right. uh, they opened up, like, they formed a government. Um, and mind you, the history of Burma or Myanmar, as they call themselves now, is a, it was um, colonial, a colonialization occurred. And the, the British were there building. And then um, they got booted out in, like, the 40s. And so you get these colonial districts in the city. And there's an older generation that, like, they were forced to speak English in secondary school, so it's almost like a primary language for them. And so they're well acquainted with Western culture. They just locked their borders. Um, of course, people still went there, but you know, you know they're usually people who are fascinated with World War Two history um, and what occurred there um, with the Burmese rail, uh, Railway. But um, while I was there, you only hear what you hear in the media is sort of going on there. And the media is either really critical of it or, you know, really like they're about to embrace democracy because they've had a military coup. You know, the military have been leading the country for a long time. And so a government formed and every, everybody got really excited. But uh, the thing is the military didn't hand over the power that freely. They sort of... They got a government in that's, you know, trying to run a country while the military, like that bigger brother still standing there telling them, no, no, yes, we can do that. But uh, the military becomes even more complicated because they moved to their capital city. So they talk about having three different militaries there. And two of them are government militaries, but they sort of, you know, they don't always agree, but they do both uh, work for the government. And then you've got the tribal uh, military which is all these villages in the north. They estimate about 30,000 people. Uh, they actually came together because they weren't happy with the current military or the current government. Um, and they've been doing this in the north for a long time. Uh, where they decided this is our rule. And even the, the military there, they don't want to have warfare again, but it's always about to occur. And then you've got the complicated issue of the Rohingya, which are like the... Muslim population, uh, they're discriminated against heavily. Like um, houses are demolished and they're sort of forced to move down into the south. So it's political. Uh, 
it's tried to be reborn again as a country, but politically the old scars are still there and they don't want the rest of the world to know about it. Uh, they just want to welcome tourism and, you know, like every other nation around Amir's, but there are still so many problems there in terms of their government, their military, um, and the discrimination with the Rohingya because it's just accepted as... Uh, They're sort of like seen as an inferior like burden, I guess. Yeah, well, people could relate it to the Indian caste system, but in the caste system, it's it's been in place so long that... It's you know it's hard to break that pattern like it's so set in their culture where this one uh, they used to live in peace together and then all of a sudden you know what do I call it they've got the only violent Buddhist in the world at the moment um, you know Buddhist terrorist as they call them because right. they do you know throw these people out of the village or burn them when they're in the house. Yeah. And then uh, the, the police will say nothing. The military will say nothing. The government will make an announcement. It was an accident when it clearly wasn't. But that's why I found it so interesting when I went on a trek in the north there through the villages. And they're just, you could feel their resentment against the fact they're run by the military around them when they're supposed to have a government in power. So that's probably the thing I found most interesting there because... The older generation can speak English. There's a younger generation that can communicate. They don't really want to talk about what's going on because that's culturally they're not supposed to do that, talk to outsiders. But because they're interested in the rest of the world, like um, it's one of the places I've felt the least threatened. You know, people comfortably hitchhike there. Um, and people, they haven't seen foreigners. And so they're interested in talking to foreigners just to be like, why, why are you coming here and where are you from? What's it like there? And that would be, wasn't the most picturesque hike, but it was, you know, proper village, proper rural, proper, you know, tourists haven't really been here. And um, if it was a different time of year, it would have been a lot better. But I think the people in that experience made it the experience I remember it for. Do you know if their borders were drawn um, by the British? Um, like, were there as uh, with respect to their neighboring countries? I'm not sure because this seems like a typical British thing to um, to have all these groups that lived more or less peacefully um, in the past, and then you draw a border, and then you have uh, you have a, a scramble for power when they leave. Yeah, well, there's a lot of barren land in Burma, but you could say the same about India, which is on the border, and the English were ruling there, like both countries for a period, so perhaps the border was set back then, and um, they border on, you know, one of the 14 countries that borders China as well, mm -hmm. and China's always been very specific about its borders. Mm -hmm. I think Thailand, but it's mainly separated by a river with that border. Yeah, I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with the history of Southeast Asia, uh, other than a little bit about Vietnam, but that's it's still sort of a mystery to me. But you've traveled there a lot. Huh? Yeah, well, um, Vietnam's obviously the history uh, most people know about it uh, with the Vietnam War. And Cambodia, at about the same time, uh, had Pol Pot, which was their own dictator, and uh, more or less he had like the Farmers Union Party, so 
anyone who lived in the cities uh, was just killed on the spot and a lot of his armies had really young children from farms and so he knew the one way to keep power was to kill people who were educated and he did that very well and he ended up getting to retire after that so yeah they were put through to clean as Cambodia and they got a corrupt government after it and they it's the one country in that area that hasn't recovered or is recovering. It's the only one that's still going downward. Um, Laos was just like that tiny country stuck in the middle of everyone else's wars. And that's why it's a very jungle, mountainy sort of country um, with very little infrastructure. You know um, that it was bombs. The, it's the most bombs country by the United States and in, in, in the entire U.S. history. Yeah, I didn't know that. And that's it's still that's that's the unexploded ordinance is a is a huge problem there yeah. in the mountains. Because not long after I was there once, Barack Obama had been there, and he was talking about the border to Vietnam, and um, Laos has more landmines than any other border in the world, right. and they were talking about a program to, you know helped it, I'll get rid of these mines. And what was really interesting at that time, I met someone in the city and this guy from New Zealand, you could see he's been living there a long time. He's been living there 10 years. And I thought, uh, when I was trying to ask him what he does and he was fixing people's motorbikes because uh, the mechanics there actually got a really bad reputation. Um, we've given foreigners bad bikes. So anyone who was gonna do a big tour, he'd fix up their bike. And eventually one night, after a few drinks, he was telling me um, he's actually an ex, um, explosive ex, uh, expert in the military and he's there uh, making new roads and um, you know trying to get rid of all these landmines so they can make roads. And I was just like, that's crazy. How many landmines are here? And he said, oh, not enough to get rid of in this lifetime. It's impossible. And it's 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 so yeah it's so terrible that um like even after this is this case also in in the Balkans that mm. you you just never in your in 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 the this generation the next generation it's just gonna be a legacy of of these wars and also there's uh, on the Western Front uh, between France and Germany there is whole swaths of land that no one to this day can go to it's, 100, it's been 100 years can't yeah. go to because of uh, unexploded ordinance it's just so heavy, heavily um, uh, like littered with, with explosives yeah well you know you can have poisonous soil but that's the worst soil of all it's a risk to walk on like, um, I think that's the big mistake where I guess we had no foresight at the time of war that we just planted all these mines and thought, oh, we can protect the borders at the very least. But you really didn't think about what was going to happen a month later, whether you won or you lost. That's like now there's whole landscapes littered with mines and we can't get rid of them. It's, it's one of the just many tragedies that we... Like war is is the the most short-sighted uh, activity I think um, you can participate in in the economic sense because uh, it's it's the mentality of consumption it's the mentality of we need to consume as much of our resources now as we can for the short-term uh, goal and this is it's it's 
not in any way, shape, or form the real um, the real path to any prosperity for a society. It's just let's take all this money and wealth and uh, and let's blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know that in the in the U.S. we learn that uh, it was World War II that brought us out of the Great Depression. Um. Like this is what we learned in high school. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I knew after World War Two that America actually sent Europe a lot of money. Yeah, the Marshall like, Plan. Yeah, and it was a one-time because this relates to what you study. They talk about it's a one-time world aid worked, where we literally just dropped in, you know, food, resources, money, uh, and Europe recovered. Um, well, you do the you know other places in the world like we're just talking about Southeast Asia. Everyone knows Africa, of course, the Middle East right now. Uh, this model doesn't work, but Europe was a complete functional economy in a functioning country before they went to war with each other. And like you say, just wasted you know all money that they had, um, all resources that they had just to protect what sovereignty, nationality. Like as far as as far as the Marshall Plan goes. Um, there's there's a couple factors that are special in the in in that particular case, which is, as you said, one they had uh, a functioning society before the war, so you can, I mean, all these a lot of, a lot of these people died, but then mm. you have the skeleton basically to fill in um, where, what it, what it used to be, and then you have uh, very importantly the Bretton Woods Agreement, which uh, basically you. The United States saw and the world saw Europe in this condition, and they said, "Okay, so you guys need to rebuild, and we're the world superpower right now with all the wealth. So what we're going to do is we're going to have an agreement that the U.S. dollar is going to be the world reserve currency, so that you can oh, you can right. borrow this uh, with the the uh, the backing of uh, thirty four dollars to an ounce of gold." And um, so the world said, "Okay, now we can safely uh, we can safely have a, uh, a currency to to rebuild economies on." And so they did this until um, so basically Europe was rebuilt around the fifties, let's say, and then uh, everyone was you know happy that they could they could rely on a, a stable U.S. dollar backed by gold, but then. Um, but then the U.S. got into Vietnam, mm. and then <laughs> and then uh, in the late '60s, the um, the European countries were looking and they said, "We have all these U.S. dollars, and you guys are spending. They're they're using more bombs in the first few years of the war than they they, they used in the Second World War, and they're just looking and they're saying, you're sending." All this wealth in in military uh, technologies and and manpower to Southeast Asia across the Pacific in greater capacities than in the Second World War, you must be cheating. And so they, so France comes along and they said, "Hey, can we trade in our dollars for gold now?" And Britain's like, oh, "I kind of want to get in on this too." So they come in and start wanting to trade in their dollars, and uh, and that's when in the in the seventies, Richard Nixon said, "Oh, we've." We were temporarily suspending the uh, the, the exchange of, of dollars for gold. So at, in 1971, the exchange, the backing of the U.S. dollar by gold ended temporarily, and that temporary suspension has never ended. 
and uh, and so the the that kind of is deviating. It's just the whole Bretton Woods um, uh, explanation of the story. But in the, the the beginning, why it worked was because that there was a trust uh, and it was backed by a real value. Yeah. Whereas now, uh, I guess foreign aid has a lot to do with uh, these uh, these international organizations like the IMF and World Bank and. Uh, it is like this, if you look at the, the Marxist perspective, you, you do get the sense that it is these wealthy nations, yeah. uh, not exploiting explicitly these countries, but uh, only acting in the interests of the most wealthy nations. And then the periphery sort of um, don't get lifted up in yeah. the same way like Germany did after the war. They got lifted up from... Armageddon <laughs> yeah. to, to, to what they are now. <coughs> so Yeah, because <clears throat> it's like world trade agreements, like the tariffs. Um, the wealthier nations have been very good at it. That um, When they make a trade agreement with a poorer nation, the poorer nation loses completely. It's like, so let's say what are their best resources? Uh, it could be sugar and rice. If they're going to import <clears throat> sugar or rice into the U.S., it's going to be, you know, the tariff is ridiculous. It could be 18 21% uh, tax on your product. Therefore, even though you're selling it to the company cheaper, nobody's going to buy it because it's taxed so high. Um, yet farmers can be given subsidies for donating rice during a crisis, like the Haiti crisis. And then the Haitian market gets flooded with rice or sugar, and then who wants to be a sugar farmer or a rice farmer anymore when, you know, people can take free stuff and they can't, you know, it ruins that trade, it ruins that economy. And I think that's in NGOs where the intention is great, like the intention of most charities is to do the right thing. But um, like what you study and most other people in the course, uh, you know, economics is a big role. How do you make a country sustainable 20 years after a disaster? You know, and World War II is an example of, you know, how you can recover, but as you say, circumstances were completely different. But in these uh, poorer nations that have already lacked a developing economy, um, I think when aid is given to them, which aid is important after a disaster, of course, um, but the aid is continued three, six months on. Um, people are losing incentives to go into those markets. Um, and when it's six months on after a disaster and they haven't planted their fields or they're not going to open up that uh, motorbike business because you know free parts are being um, brought into the country, uh, you sort of ruin... Uh, markets you know the free market in those countries uh yeah the issue a lot of the times is that they don't have completely free markets actually and then when they when some other uh outside entity comes and brings in free stuff um that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just that they don't um their economy doesn't adapt fast enough mm. so you have like these uh unplanted fields or these uh like small uh I would say like the, a motorbike repair would be a cottage industry. Mm. It's not going to change to like making cell phones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so yeah, it's a diff it's a difficult um, situation when you have less developed countries because they they can't adapt. And uh, even though on paper 
you should say that, oh, if something suddenly is so uh, affordable or even free, then the economy should just should just uh, switch over to something else that uh, that can benefit society. Mm. It's just not even in a developed country, it can be it can be difficult. Yeah, but I've always had a fascination with uh, what we'd call third world countries and, you know, specifically a first world country is someone who is associated with the Allies, um, with the original world wars. So Europe, obviously, the States, Australia. Um, and these countries are considered the most wealthy. And you've got second world countries, which are considered the, the countries that used to be socialist and may still be socialist. So, you know, a Russia... Um, a China, I think even like a, a Mongolia. Um, and there are crossovers with countries, you know, like Japan and South Korea specifically have had it a long time. A thriving, a thriving economy of a first world country, uh, but within the definition, they don't really sit anywhere. But third world countries are people who more or less had nothing to do with those wars. So Central South America, Southeast Asia... Um, North Africa, South Africa, Middle East, so it makes up a bit of a bigger part of the world. And the thing I find interesting in these countries, it's it, people expect them to be horrible, but they go either way for me. Some of them, you go there and you can see there's a more of a general level of happiness, and everybody's fed. Nobody's rich. Like they may know a rich friend, but everybody lives on that line. That that's like I couldn't imagine living close to that line where. You know, if they don't sell two more things today, the family's going hungry tomorrow type of thing. Uh, but it works somehow. These countries have made that system work. Uh, but they've made it almost impossible to jump above that, which is the problem. They don't like giving out loans to expand your business. Uh, it's too much of a risk for the banks and they'll never do it. And so... The one thing I've noticed with third world countries is some of them really do have the ability to break out. There's just no resources for them to do it. But I've been to other places where it really does feel like they don't want to break out of this system. Uh, it would take something dramatic for them to embrace you know, uh, a different way of living, a, a more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you, you live with more than what you need. Um, like uh, just surplus. Or yeah, yeah, just surplus. Just, uh, yeah, you're not in living hand to mouth, and uh, that's that's what's indicative of developing countries is um, subsistence living. They just mm. like you said, you, if you don't sell enough uh, today, that you're not eating tonight, and you got to figure it out tomorrow with fewer resources. Yeah, and no, I think the one place you need to go in the world to just see the complete contrast of those two things is India. Always, India is just. Wealth is extravagant there and, you know, there are some areas in the south you go to and people wear that wealth on them. Like they'll have gold all over mm. them, like proper solid gold. And then you go to other parts and you just see poverty like you've never seen. Like, um, it's, you know, hard to believe. Like you'd have to be tough to make it to 16 even. Mm. Um, they... I think that's where China have done really well compared to India when you have a population that big because I think that's got to be one of the most difficult parts of keeping, you know, some sort of, you know, where everyone feels like they're equal on the playing field. Everybody has an opportunity to work their way up the ladder or work their way down the ladder, whichever way. Um, but in, 
India, it's just absolute madness. I've never been to a place like that where it's you don't have that opportunity. Where China, they have a better system in place for people to get themselves into um, employment. And although both countries do suffer from the poverty and you know areas that they're probably not proud that the rest of the world know about, but that comes with having such a big population. I think. You can, you can never look after everyone, and when your population's over a billion, that becomes even more difficult. But the and the more glass half full sort of um, perspective, these two countries have pulled in the last century, not even last century, last like forty, fifty years uh, out of poverty, like mm. more people out of poverty than ever in history. And that's that's got to count for something. But um, I don't know about it. I know in China it's the case that everyone sort of feels, hey, I belong to this Chinese nation. Uh, is it like that in India? I, I imagine it's so diverse that not everyone feels like they're all uh, in the same boat. Yeah, well, I think what makes it quite unique also there is that... Um... There's, I think someone, it's probably more than this, but I had, I was told it's like in the mid-twenties of the amount of languages in the country, and some of them do not have dialects that are relatable at all, <clears throat> and so anyone who's had an education can speak English, uh, because that's what they often do, if they meet someone from a complete different area, <clears throat> and they'll just communicate in English there, uh, but uh, I don't feel like people feel like they're on the same playing level, they have the same opportunities. People, you're born into opportunities, there are a lot more, which I know is common around the world, but in India, you're not going to hear too many stories about the kid from the slums becoming a, a sports champion or a great businessman. Um, it's The infrastructure is just not set up to do that. And like it's a whole nother topic altogether that they're... Their caste system is something integral to them. And to me, I, I really couldn't grasp the caste system. I understood it when people told me about it, but I didn't, like, people weren't, it, it was just completely acceptable. Nobody would question it. I'm like, this is the hugest thing you, I thought people would question when they came here. And it's like, you know, it's like people who still have royalty, yeah, we we know England have royalty because it brings a lot of tourism. You know, people think the Queen's sweet and all of that, but a lot of these small European countries still have royalty, and it's like why it's like so not relevant anymore. Um, I think that class system people are getting sick of it very quickly. I, th I thought they had gotten rid of the caste system, but it's I guess it's built in, sort of baked into the cake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like it's. It's still culturally there, you know, if you're from, you know, this cast up here, that cast down there, uh, there's no chance of you two getting married. Like, uh, sure, you could attempt it and it could make a great Bollywood, you know, romance movie, mm. but uh, the reality is uh, the families would explain the shame it brings on them. And so it's, it's very difficult for, um, you know, I think with the younger generation to deal with there and keep quiet about it because they've had their recent issues about, you know, women's equality uh, and there's, 
you you got to agree. There's a there's an issue with most cultures in the world when it comes to women's equality. Yeah, it's we just, talked about this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just different how every country um, are really like the graduation speech we went to the other night. Um, it was really funny. This lecturer with the best intentions possible opened up and he talked about the fact he apologizes that most the the staff here, the teachers, the lecturers are all males. When obviously in recent years, females have actually dominated the marks in the classroom. And he goes, so he's happy to announce like uh, there was three winners um, who won like the best thesis. And two of them were about, you know, a certain type of feminism. But it was funny when one girl came up to, you know, accept the prize or to talk. He just said, I'm sorry, can you just wait there for two minutes and then you can come up? And then he tried explaining her thesis in the worst. Like you could tell he had no idea what it was about. Like the whole mansplaining thing as they call it. Yeah. And then he gave, you know, the award and I thought... Yeah, you know, he tried to be really good there, but it's that type of I think cultural, you know, sexism that happens quite a bit where he doesn't realise you just cut her off, poorly explained what she just you know, put six months of her heart and life into. I'm like, Yeah, that's it's just sort of like a I would call it very Western sexism. It's like it's like a backhanded compliment. Yeah. Like it's to me like a almost kind of in its own way quite offensive to like sort of if i was a woman to call attention to hey look look at the, what this broad did <laughs> look at look at how well she did yeah it's like if, if someone was uh were to um to say um oh we've got got all these like winners for theses and and then like oh like this many asians got it it's like, yeah why just, just treat us treat us treat us all with uh like equally like just don't call attention to to identity. Like that's yeah. that's the that's a big issue for me today uh, in 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 society is this uh, weird overinflation of identity. Where identity to me it's it's something that it's it's part of you, but it, you don't let it define you because it you're in in that case you're you're just taking the uh, the the um, the achievements and uh, and failures of of people who have nothing really to do with you uh, mm. personally and so wait so you were saying that a lot of these um thesis uh winners were how many were there there's three there's three and i think two of them were these girls who you related know, to feminism yeah like uh, i'm not even going to try say the topic <laughs> they were doing but you know it's obviously when you're doing a thesis it's a very unique branch that you're studying in and so obviously it was a difficult concept to explain anyway, but uh, I think if you, you couldn't explain it or sum it up very well, you should have just asked a student to write a speech for you or something. Like, But then again, what thesis writer is going to sum up their paper in two minutes? Right? And you dedicate that much time to it. Yeah, but that's, that's one of those topics that... It, so in this program, we're learning a lot about lenses to look at the international system and globalization through. And uh, it's sort of glossed over, actually, the feminist, um, the feminist uh, theories of international relations. But yeah, I guess maybe that professor didn't even himself know very much about it he was trying to he's trying to like just wing it and, and and that's that's what i find actually about these international programs is um is as far as quality goes the the 
the language is important because if if I was in a program in the States or in the UK, for example, then we'd be speaking on, we'd be all more or less on the same page as far as language goes. But you have here um, people with all different levels of, of, language, of, of English yeah. understanding and it can get in the way. Um, your your program can only be as good as as the the person who's the worst at English in the program, and so uh, I I do learn quite a bit in this program, but I it, it's it's very um, it's it's much slower uh, than if I was in a program with all English uh, native speakers. Yeah, well, I think Jody was explaining that to me, and Jody's my girlfriend who studies with Layman. Um, that uh, because of the different levels of English, when she wrote one paper uh, and she got her mark back and heard about other people's marks, and she goes, "It's purely her knowledge of the English language that got her a better mark." Right, she right. Goes, you know, when I teach students here English and they're at a lower level, and I tell them, you know, to say the sentence, you know. Um, I will get off the bus. Um, sometimes I say, I'll get the bus off. <laughs> and I'll be like, although that sentence is so closely related, you can't word it like that. You've completely changed the meaning of the yeah. sentence uh, when you mix up those words. So I can imagine when you have, you know, a few thousand words to write and English could be your second or third language and you're trying to do an academic paper on a subject where... If your English level isn't almost at a native level, like it's going to be very difficult to express your point properly. Right. Where um, I think when you're a native speaker and you're in this program, you have that advantage of being able to use your words much better. Um, which, yeah, I can understand because this program, like uh, majority English is their second language, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm. And you get wide-ranging, I mean, you have Germans who are quite good at English, the Dutch as well, um, uh, but then you have uh, folks from China who <laughs> they, 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 they can hardly keep up with the lectures, and then you have, yeah, just, just the whole range, and then the the, the, public, the publications that are going to come out with these thesis uh, papers are... You're gonna have a range of quality uh, because, and then some people aren't even from the same background. So uh, it's a great program. It's really fun, but uh, at the end of the day, there's uh, you in lectures. There's gonna be a lot of uh, the professors are gonna to have to explain uh, at a sort of language level something <laughs> that, that people aren't gonna get. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, which is also really good lecturers like their communication skills because even for my university days back in Australia, I can tell you, even though language wasn't the actual issue, their ability to communicate uh, was at times horrific because they were just trying to teach you what the curriculum taught and you could see they weren't passionate about it. You could see they're just going through all the information and... Yeah, the communication was just. Uh, it, we all had those lecturers back in the day. But obviously, in this program, it's completely different because even most of your lecturers, English is a their second, second language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Jody said in yeah, Leipzig she had a Canadian lecturer. It was quite good, but even so, I think he could speak other languages. It's like he'd been living in Germany a while, obviously, so probably German, but. 
for him that would be the challenge when he teaches at a German university is that he has to uh, lecture in German instead of English. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> oh, and it's there's one thing like in the US and Australia probably have in common is a lack of emphasis on learning a second language while you're younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably it's more pushed in the States because of you know you are bordering a Spanish-speaking country. Right. But because we're in Ireland, um, you know, it's more common to be taught Indonesian and it's not usually... Is it really? Yeah. In public schools, it's the most common. But of course, you're going to get schools with Italian, French or Spanish, um, which I think I had, you know, French for a couple of years, but uh, mainly Indonesian. Um, I had no idea. And that's, that's, to me, quite a random language. Makes sense for Australia, but that's quite random. Yeah, I think that was the idea of the curriculum. They just decided, well, what's the nearest country? Like, probably because there were complaints of people learning Spanish, Italian, or French, and they're going, but that's the other side of the world. Why do yeah. I need to learn that? But, like, I guess the reality is Italian was very useful because where I grew up, it was you know, an area where a lot of the older generation, you know, there was a lot of Italian immigrants and. Uh, they would mainly speak Italian too. So their children were uh, bilingual because they'd learn Italian to communicate with their parents. But, you know, they were pretty much English native speakers because that's all they did socially outside their family. Why was there so much Italian? Uh, It was just a lot of immigration in the 50s after World War II. Italy to Australia. Yeah, there's a lot. Never heard of it. (laughs) There's a lot in... Like uh, in my state, Victoria, particularly, uh, we've got a river that divides New South Wales and Victoria, so they're the biggest for population. But this river, when all the Italians immigrated, they bought most of the farm property on this river, and it was in the middle of nowhere. Like the, the towns there were even tiny, and they planted all the fruit trees, and you know, they weren't doing much for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden, they had relatives who were living in the cities there and then they had this chain, this agreement, people growing it, people selling it and it was one of those things when they jumped into Australia, they jumped into a hole in the economy very quickly um, and they were known as the, the hardest working sort of generation of people who came from overseas, the Italians. Um, but my step-granddad is from Sicily originally but uh, he moved over when he was like four and you won't hear him speak, uh, say a word of Italian, <laughs> even though he looks like your typical little Papa Giuseppe, you know, little <laughs> Italian. Uh, but he hates the language because, um, I, I don't know, he learned it when he was younger and he just hated speaking it and he still does now. Wow. That's interesting that Australia had that too because the United States, as most people know, the Italian community, mm. I think this is uh, you know, the early 1900s there headed over to New York City and you got a bunch of Italians and Jersey and New York and yeah I didn't know that that was the case oh, in, the, in Australia. The, they were in um, the US much earlier yeah uh, they came to Australia mainly after the world wars but well like yeah we have outside of Athens uh, the city with the most Greeks in it is Melbourne also uh, after the war um, yep mainly after the war and then constantly crumbling economy but uh, yeah, because I, I knew I lived in a Greek area of Melbourne, and I knew to a lot of Greeks. And because when you grow up in an area like I spent my you know, late teens, early twenties in that area, you don't see it as strange that there's 
a huge Greek neighborhood. You know, there's these two suburbs are mostly, you know, Greek families and Greek names are extremely common. Uh, and it wasn't until after a bit of travel, I realized, why doesn't anyone have Greek suburbs or Greek areas? And it's like, ah, oh, it's because, you know, Melbourne was a unique city like that, that just has a huge Greek community. Do you know why these like, Mediterranean people started moving to Australia? Oh, a lot of it was post-war. Um, yeah, but like, that's like there's, so far. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, you know, there were ships coming. Um, Australia, like obviously after the war ourselves, like a, a lot of men died at war, so there was a lot of vacancies to be filled. Okay. And so, yeah, they got people from, you know... One of my best friends, he's Macedonian, so you pretty much say Greek. Uh, you got the Italians, um, a bit further north, like a lot of Lebanese, and it sort of all happened around the same period. The mi migration after the Second World War is quite interesting because then you have, I'm just now learning about all these Mediterranean, uh, Middle Eastern people now going to Australia, mm. and then you have Turks moving to Germany mm. uh, later on. North Vietnamese going to Germany, and then like the migration of German people itself, like they from the east all the way <laughs> to the west, uh, they try to get as far west as they could, away from the East Germany, and then across the ocean to the United States. Yeah, that war really fucked up the world. <laughs> it did. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, because I'm from a place so far removed from war, like um. Yeah, Europe's history is considered old now, but it's still so recent. It's like nationalism does exist in all the, the countries here. And, you know, it, it could be considered the size of the United States, you know, just with a, a few less states if you throw away Russia and the mm -hmm. Balkans over there. Uh, but, yeah, we talked about, you know, that states is culturally different in each, you know, state, so to say. Uh, but... Nationalism is still U.S. nationalism where in Europe because they are individual countries, even though they could be just the whole country could be called Europe and they're just all different states of the one country. I think was the ultimate goal of the European Union probably down down the track, but um, unfortunately, the two things that cause wars, religion and nationalism, um, have definitely hindered any chance of that happening. Yeah, well. Uh, that's one thing. I have so many criticisms of the European Union, but one of them that I, I'll keep coming back to, uh, one of the things that is uh, that it has done right is kept more or less peace in Europe, which is an ex anomaly in history, and that is priceless. Um, but still, I, I see on Instagram, <laughs> uh, the European Parliament has an Instagram page, and they've, like, They've had they have sponsored ads where there's like, what does the European Union do for me? And it's all these people like saying, oh, I get clean water, I get like safe food to eat, I get uh, my my children can play with safe toys, and it's like, oh, that's thanks European Union. It's like, Come on, this is such propaganda. But at the end of the day, peace is priceless. Oh, it's funny with marketing campaigns and governments, even though the European Union is sort of yeah state head uh, when. It's happened everywhere I go. Like, there's always TV ads when a new legislation's being considered or something. They get young people uh, to get on and talk about how this is going to change their lives and make their lives so much better. And it's like, come on, you've always called out socialist uh, propaganda. Now we've got this type of propaganda happening um, in the free world, or you know, 
Don't ever trust it. <laughs> oh, it's just like I, I've worked around pharmaceuticals before, and to me, you know, the biggest thing when you study it and you know become proficient with it, you have to understand the side effects, uh, the side effects, the adverse effects, uh, medications that will clash. And it becomes very apparent that this industry is dangerous. It's sort of like you need to be very responsible. And then you see they've got TV commercials for certain types of medication and it's not because so the doctor can watch it and go, I might prescribe this medication because I saw it in an ad during the news. It's because the patient has the right when they go to the doctor, can you change my medication? I would rather be on this medication. And it's like you've got an ill person and you're giving them the right to choose a medication because of propaganda and marketing. Like you can't, to me it's ridiculous if I saw hypertension medications, the blood pressure medication marketed because the idea is once you're on them, like let's say just statins, once you start them, you can't stop them because if you're on them for six months and then you want to stop them, your chance of having a you know a heart attack or a stroke in those weeks after stopping them increase like tenfold. It's um, really dangerous. So with those types of medications, it's more the doctor should have a responsibility of being able to say, look, they're going to have to be on the medication for nearly the rest of their lives. Why don't we do the one that will cause the least amount of harm with other medications they may already be on? But somehow they can still market to their patients. And yeah, medicine, everybody knows, it's not a simple thing. And it's usually, with pharmaceuticals specifically, uh, you've got to learn about all the diseases before you can learn about all the drugs. And so um, I was grateful for that type of knowledge, but you do learn uh, pills don't actually fix problems. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Uh, personally a very free market person but when it comes to human psychology you can't uh, get around the fact that uh, every day uh, we're, our ape minds are being manipulated in some way by an advertisement and someone's trying to sell you something and that's where it gets dangerous there's um, and it's, it truly is you the free market uh, um, mindset is predicated on uh, rational decision making and uh, and choice making, uh, and the 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 issue is that our stupid ape minds are are, <laughs> are just unable to uh, to say no to some things that are, are that make us feel good. Yeah. Uh, as as far as like a, an advertisement that says like if we buy this car we'll we'll we'll, we'll be happy in this way and um, and that's a, it's it's. I was recently watching. I need to get back on it because it's like a four-part series on, uh, on the. I think it's the influence of of Freud's uh, studies on current, um, on on modern society, and how he really did uh, anticipate a lot of these um, these the the way that uh, that humans can manipulate other humans because of just the wiring in the brain. Mm. Um, but then hopefully, uh, after the sixties and then like now, like, uh, exploring the mind with, with, uh, psychedelics and meditation and things like this, then people can start breaking away from it. But I, I, for sure, even, especially in recent days, um, being by myself so much, uh, being that uh, really noticing this, like 
crazy. Uh, I, I was call, I'll call it an addiction to um, to uh, uh, social media and mm-hmm. like and well not just social media but like uh, YouTube and things like just like uh, this this constant flow of news mm-hmm. and um, and I'll just find myself uh getting getting an hour deep into something i'm like oh fuck i don't remember anything i looked at but but I, but it happened and there's there goes an hour and it's terrible it's just that's that's just the the the, the mind that we're wired with and then humans i don't, I don't think are, are ready for it or i don't know if we ever will be we just created this thing that uh that we can't handle and actually facebook the um, one of the early um like higher ups in facebook recently said uh, he's sorry that, uh, that of, of what Facebook has done because we've you've really fucked with this reward system. This like this constant need for the the dopamine hits from likes. It's uh, uh it's it's uh, he he says it's really manipulating society and it's bad. That's hilarious because it's it's atrocious for a younger generation. Because um, I agree with you fully that um, I find you know when you're alone and you're taking time off anyway. And you do want to stick to the things you have to do. Then you go, oh, I'll maybe watch a bit of YouTube. And like you say, it's mm-hmm. like an hour or two later. You're like, oh, no. Well, how did I even start this? And how did I end up here? Uh, and it's kind of like it, you, at the time when you start doing it, it, it feels like a reward. And then eventually you're like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not even enjoying this anymore. Yeah, you don't absorb so much of it, actually. Mm-hmm. You'll go through the YouTube videos. You'll go through the things that are scrolling through on Facebook and yeah, it's awful. I, I need to, I need to work on it, and I, I don't know if I'll, I'll improve on it in the next few days on my own, but uh, hopefully. So, uh, I think during the day, it depends what the weather's like when we get to Berlin. But during the day, as long as it's not raining all day, it's easy to get yourself out and be distracted in a new place. Like that's it, with company or alone. But sometimes when you're in a familiar environment and it's cold and it's wet and sort of that comfort, yeah, you do. Like I, I try to get outside during the day uh, just to prevent cabin fever. But you know when the weather's you know, no good and you know we've got a very the community here in Roslov. It's uh, it's a very social community. It's very easy to be social all the time. And of course, I'm living here with Jody. So we're always sort of in each other's company and I found being alone again, yeah, it was the first thing I turned to with social media. Yeah, you want that connection with people. Yeah. Yeah. The, um that's you know, I, I don't have phone service on my on my uh my phone. I just I use Wi Fi when I'm in range and then when yeah. I'm out and about I, I like to be I like that moment of connectedness and then Yeah. Or uh, disconnected uh well, I guess in a way, connecting this to reality. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's how it is. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, we can improve upon that. Yeah, no, no wonder we get along really well. I actually love not having a phone, and I usually do it when uh, I'm not working. And so, like your iPhone situation, I purely have something for Wi-Fi um, because you know. I have WhatsApp, I have, you know, Messenger, people can get in contact and yeah, I enjoy that. I'm not ashamed of that bit at all. It's uh you know, it's when you flicking through your news feed after thirty minutes or you're on you know, YouTube for too long, but when you're disconnected, uh, is a sense like your body feels it, you relax, you you're not your energy isn't diverted towards your phone or what's yeah. gonna be there. And I just got a message funnily. <laughs> uh, but 
once again, that's exactly what it just did to me. Like, uh, yeah. I like groups, or I'm a part of groups, or I'm in group chats, and then right. I get a message, and I think that could be something important. I look, well, I just, it's nice when you don't have that outside of your home environment. Yeah. And I, I do miss the days where it was like, you'd have a home phone and an email address, and you couldn't check either one until you got home. Exactly, yeah. And so it was expected that people won't reply until this moment and it's not that I'm a busy guy I'm an easily distracted guy so sometimes when I have a message I'm a bit late getting back to it uh, and I know I could have replied straight away when I saw it but I usually don't like to interrupt what I'm doing because of the phone unless it is something really pressing well, well, that, well that's good that you can at least uh, put it off that's that's not a bad thing actually yeah. to be able to put things off like, like that um Maybe we need more of that in society. And that's what I really like about doing podcasts is and we're just sitting here talking for, <laughs> for an hour and, uh, and uh, there's no, uh, we have minimal distraction and we're not like connected and worrying about what's going on outside these walls. Mm. So yeah, well now we're coming up on our time, but it was, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was a really awesome episode. Yeah, it was. We got that went really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, thanks for coming on, and uh, and uh, also uh, Merry Christmas here at the end of this episode. Yeah, Merry Christmas. We certainly had a good one here. Yeah, we did. Cool. Peace. <laughs>